You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So it's a real pleasure to um, host all of you here at ODI tonight. Um, we have an audience of about 200 people following us online. Um, and um, it is uh, it is also a real pleasure and reflection to begin this new year with continuing to maintain this conversation on uh, what we are going to do about this urgent um, and important um, debate happening um, in our country, in Europe, and globally around um, the reality of human mobility across the world. So tonight we are going to talk about something that, in my view, um, is just simply not discussed enough in uh, the multitude of migration and displacement conversation happening right now across the world from the debates in New York and Geneva and elsewhere about the two global compacts being negotiated um, all the way to the difficult discussions in Europe and indeed in a number of country. It is remarkable how much across these conversations we continue to reference to, uh, to make reference to migration as fundamentally, and displacement, as fundamentally the, you know, the, the movement of someone from a country of origin that one decides to leave in search for a better life, or one is forced to leave because of conflict or national disasters, or an, a, a debate, a, a difficult political debate in a country of destination where um, these migrants and refugees need to be better integrated uh, for different reasons. And we simply ignore or do not talk often about what happens in between. So what happens along the journeys that different people make across different countries um, um, and how much that actually shapes the, the, the reality of human mobility, the decisions that people make along the way. And the... Um, and, and the reason why that, I think, is, is a major problem is that we risk actually having a very big blind spot. If you think about how many people are currently engaged in trying to find solutions to this big crisis around migration and how much we are not considering uh, what's happening um, you know, along the ways of, um, of, of the realities of migrants and refugees' um, journeys. We've just come from a seminar where we presented actually the findings please, uh, from this excellent book that I need to recommend to all of you that Heaven will say a bit more about in a minute, the findings of the MedMig projects that interviewed 500 refugees and migrants I think in 2015 who arrived in Europe and almost none of them originally set out to come to Europe. So there must be, it must mean that somewhere along the way decisions were made that resulted in this very small number of people actually making their way to Europe. Imagine how many more um, are um, along different um, 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 parts of that journey that we are simply not paying much attention to. When we talk about journeys, we tend to talk about journeys at sea. We seem to not pay enough attention to everything that happens before uh, migrants and refugees set out um, on a boat, whether it is on the coast of Turkey or of Libya. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk a lot about what happens between the original decision that migrants make to migrate or the, or the original causes that force um, refugees to um, flee a particular countries um, in between that and um, what, ha you know, what happens afterwards along their journeys. Um, the, the reason why I think this matters is, 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 is there are a number of those. First of all, 
as we think about the solutions for this great big problem, you know, debate about migration, we tend to simply not focus enough on what can be done um, in between. Secondly, people die or are exposed to great risks on some of those journeys. And again, um, is not enough to just focus on elements of those and particularly just focusing to the passage at sea and everything else that people can be exposed to and risk along the ways. And finally, we're at risk spending a, phenom a phenomenal amount of money uh, by putting in place solutions either at borders in Europe or in countries of origin to so try to tackle root causes that ignore um, everything that could be done in between. So to me, this is a real pleasure to have a, you know, a conversation about this often you know, forgotten or simply not uh, well understood aspects of the migration debate. And I really cannot think of anyone better than Kate Hady to help us navigate uh, this debate and have um, you know, any, uh, a real conversation about what this all means. Let me briefly introduce Kate, um, and then I'll hand over to her to chair this event. Uh, most of you, certainly those of you uh, based in Britain, but all over the world, as you listen to the BBC and the BBC World Service, will know, will be familiar with Kate's voice um, and with Kate's work as the BBC chief news correspondent. Um, of course, one of the first British women to um, report and send dispatch from um, war zones and dangerous zones around the world. And of course, today, Kate is the presenter of um, the BBC programme from a world correspondent that I personally really enjoy every weekend. Um, so I'm very excited to welcome uh, Kate ODI. Um, Kate has done amazing things in her life as a journalist. Um, she had memorable assignments including both Gulf Wars, four years of wars in the Balkans, the final NATO intervention in Kosovo and the election in 2000. Um, the Herald of Free Enterprise disaster in Zeigbrugge, the massacre in Dunblane, the Selby Rail crash, the SAS lifting of the Iran embassy siege in London, the Bologna railway um, terrorist attack, which I was not aware of, and I remember very well um, being in Italy at the time, what it all meant for our own um, country history, and the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989. And you will not be surprised to know that she was therefore awarded an OBE in 1993. So, Kate, welcome to the eye, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Over to you. Very kind of you. Thank you so much. Um, you will have gathered from that, and I'm an absolute dinosaur. Um, uh, in the time that I've reported, um, I've been across a lot of borders. I've also, I suppose, seen a lot of people on the move. And I am by no means, though, an expert. I'm an observer, a witness, which is what a journalist uh, aims to do. We've got the experts here. We'll be hearing from them in the moment. Each will make a presentation. And then we go to the Q&A. And I want to involve as many people as possible. Please keep your questions short. Um, could you keep your statements or particularly lengthy view and enormous and fascinating story that you have until we um, have our reception. Afterwards, there will be a chance um, to go into detail then. But for this se session, it would be nice to get as many ideas, uh, as many views as possible. We're also going to get them online. Welcome to our online guests. Uh, they will be joining in with the Q&A. Um, I will only make one point about it. I haven't a great love for borders, for control posts, for barbed wire, for mines. I've been across quite a number of those. The only border that is now coming well into uh, people's discussion is the one between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic. I, I, can, I can confirm one wonderful thing about it, that if you go looking for it, as I did one morning, and ended up in a farmhouse, 
uh, having traveled from Belfast with this very nice woman who sat us down on the sofa and said, before we begin to talk about the border, would you like a cup of tea? And I said, yes. She said, well, I'll go into the Republic and put the kettle on, <laughs> proceeded to walk into the kitchen. Sadly, the rest of the world is not like that. The rest of the world, as we have seen recently, and particularly in bits and pieces on the media, and certainly without the kind of detail and expertise we have from our panel here, it is one of the discussion uh, points, a political football, and very much an emotional subject, which takes up a good deal of thought these days and has not gone away and looks as if it is going to pose us with many more questions in the future. Um, let me introduce the panelists. Our first panelist is Dr. Joanne Liu, international president of Médecins Sans Frontières. She first started working with MSF in 1996 and has since worked to support people affected by natural disasters and within conflict zones including Palestine, Central African Republic and Sudan's Darfur region. Our next speaker is Professor Heaven Crawley, Chair of International Migration at Coventry University's Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations. She's written extensively on a wide range of asylum and immigration issues, including the causes of migration to Europe. Then we have Ahmad al-Rashid, a Syrian campaigner from Aleppo who now lives in London. Ahmad fled Aleppo to Kurdistan due to the conflict before making a perilous two-month journey across Europe, arriving in the UK, hidden in the back of a lorry. He now holds an MSc in Violence, Conflict and Development from SOAS. And our final speaker this evening is Dr. Jessica Hagen-Zanka, a research fellow for migration at ODI, focusing on understanding how migration and other policies affect migrant decision-making and migration and development. Experts all, so ears pricked up as I ask Dr. Joanna Liu, the international president of MSF, to give a sense and give us an overview of the Mediterranean migrant crisis. Thank you very much. Good evening. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I have a cold. I just traveled from overseas, so uh, bear with me. Um, so what I wanted to share with you, and the reason why MSF associated, you know MSF hates to be associated with anything. So being associated with this event is like a big deal. <laughs> Um, just for you to know. Um, and, and, but it's the fact that we could recognize ourselves in that work. And, and because it's about journeys of people, and it's what I call journeys of survival. Journeys of people who have no choice. And so last September, uh, upon my return from Libya, we, uh, we MSF had an open letter. We accused the EU government of colluding with criminals. We called it the business of despair. And those were strong words, but I guess they were not strong enough because they were not picked up. But um, the thing is, for me, is, was, to, was to, to talk about what is going on and the obsession of Europe about, uh, about decreasing the number of people basically uh, reaching the, 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 the beaches, the shore of Europe, is, is the cost of what we are self-celebrating the decreasing number is a human cost. And the thing is, in Libya, MSF has been working in detention center. 
and 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 I went there, and I think that for me, after 20 years of working at the front line of all the crises of this world, was the most extreme incarnation of men's cruelty. I'm still hunted by those images. And I remember very well when I went to visit this prison. Everybody knew I'm the international prison. Everybody knew that I might speak out afterwards. And so I remember very well in that center in Libya. And there's this huge man, 400 pounds. And he just said, you want to see the cell? I said, yes, come. And then he opened the door. And then he has a wooden stick in his hand. And he's like, nothing like this. And people just retrieve like this. And what I saw was hundreds of eyes in emaciated faces looking at me, reaching out with their hands and asking me, save me, save me. I was speechless. I don't know what to tell them. But I promised myself that my organization would speak out about it and we tell the rest, we will tell the rest of the world that the cost of the deterrent of the closing border is a human cost. It's a cost where we've created island of no rights, where people are abusers over and over again. I could not, I could not get erased that thought of that woman who told me, who whispered to me when I was doing the rounds in the hospital where we refer people, that she said, you know what? They are singling out pregnant women and they make sure that we know they're raping them every night as a way to enslave. And then today we're using public money to enable this. And I think that in the comfort of that warm room tonight, our discussion needs to bring some action. And then so I don't have, you know, I don't have, you know, the specific action, but I know that if we do not, if we do not stand and let this happen, we are basically denying part of our humanity, not recognizing the humanity of people who are fleeing for their life or fleeing for better life. It's the beginning of denying our own humanity. And that's my plea to you tonight about all this conversation that you're gonna have and about all those amazing data that people's gonna share and studies they've done on 500 peoples that we need to take a stand and not let ourselves being basically um, uh, intellectualized the, the issue. It's about life, it's about human being. People <laughs> are trying to basically get the same thing as you want. You know, and I know, and if people were saying, you were saying that it was a very emotional topic. It is a very emotional topic. You know, I am the product of migration. And I'm just gonna tell you that it's completely unbeatable, completely unbeatable the motivation for parents to offer a future for their children. <coughs> All the sacrifice that everybody does 
And that's exactly what people are doing. They're doing that for themselves, they're doing that for their family. So we have data, and we're just going to tell you that basically, for example, in Greece, we've looked at people. We have people, you know, coming for the common things, the cold, the burn, a lot of burn because they, they're trying to, to warm themselves while winter is, is here. But the other thing, it's about mental health. And what we see in all our data is people's physical health and mental health is deteriorating in all those hotspot detention center holding area that we have created in Europe, in the first world. And so when I was there in Samos a few months ago, people are committing suicide. They left war to be parked in those islands of no rights to end up committing suicide. Actually, our willingness in Samos is more than 400 people who wants to see our psychiatrist. Counseling is not good enough. They need to see a psychiatrist. So before I wrap up, I cannot not talk about Bangladesh, although we're talking about Europe. That's my cold. Because I was just there. And I know that, I know that, that we, we're going to have the same thing. It's, it's, we're going to have the same repeat history. It's about people, again, who are stateless, nameless, and statusless. And they are left in the limbo of policies. And then, and then you know, we have been interested by it because it was such, such, I would say, a massive exodus. But the, the reality, we, it's already off the news right now. But we, 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 have, we have the same problem. It's, it's across the world. So, and then the psychological trauma is the same. And today, with the, the Bangladesh and the Myanmar people are saying, you know, you're going to return back to where you are. And then basically, you know, you're going to return with your oppressor. And then these are what our policies are doing. They're not addressing what, what people are needing. They're needing a safe place. And as well, we are basically only I would say building policies to return back where they are coming, which is from oppression. And so my last thing is to say that um, I want, I just want to tell you that um, I, don't know, I don't know what to say anymore to convince people that something needs to happen. I'm, I am running out of words. And then the only thing I can say, and I know that I'm not allowed to say that in the name of MSF, so I'm going to say it under my name, is the fact that the European greedy, protective, deterrent policy that are going on right now has a human cost. And as far as I'm concerned, that's going to be a moral stain in our collective history. And that's saying it's up to us to change the course of history. So thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Now going on to Professor Heaven, Helen Crawley, Heaven Crawley, Chair of International Migration at Coventry University's Center for Trust, Peace, and Social Relations. Your recent book draws on the first-hand accounts of the 500 new arrivals to Europe in 2015, which we heard in the introduction. Um, can you give a sense of how journeys to Europe are made, um, about the methods, the routes, and the reasons? 
Okay, thank you. I mean, I, I'd like to begin uh, just by thanking Joanne, actually, partly for writing the foreword to the book, um, but also just reminding us of the, the humanity that underpins the issues that we're talking about. And I, I mean, we, we did this research um, at what you might call the height of the crisis, by which in European terms is described in terms of the largest numbers of people who are arriving across the Mediterranean. Now, of course, put in a global context, this is not a crisis numerically, but what it came to represent politically and, and in terms of the lives of those who were arriving, some of whom we were talking to, was indeed a, a personal crisis for those people. Um, we interviewed 500 people, as has already been mentioned, over the course of just three or four months, and it was, it was challenging and, and difficult, but we thought it was important because we wanted to um, collect almost in real time um, the stories of people who were arriving to unpack and challenge some of the very dominant narratives that were already at that point starting to become very hard, you know, very firmly formed in terms of both the political and the public and media narratives. Uh, we talk quite a lot in the book about, you know, there's a reason why migration crisis is in parenthesis. We put it in parenthesis because the idea of crisis is really not one of numbers, but about the kind of failures of, of the of politicians and politics more generally uh, to respond to the kinds of things that we've been hearing about. But we also talk in the book about the certain set of circumstances, particularly in relation to the, the Libyan situation, but also in terms of, of Syria, um, and how that came to uh, coalesce, if you like, in 2015 with a certain uh, situation uh, uh, unfolding on, on the beaches of Europe. And I think before I just say something about the journeys and what we found about the journeys, it's worth just reminding ourselves that the view from Europe is indeed um, the view from Europe. So this is very much the representation of what was happening in 2015. And, and you would think from this kind of this is a BBC uh, representation as it happens, but based on UNHCR data. So there are worse ones, put it that way. Um, but from that representation, all of the movement to Europe starts on the on the beaches, right, in the in the coast of of North Africa and elsewhere. And of course, the focus is entirely on, on Europe itself. And what you see if you start to look beyond that is a very much more complicated uh, picture of how it is that people come to be in Europe in the first place. And so, and if you look back one further, if you like go out geographically from our European focal point, you'll see, of course, that actually Europe just becomes this really rather small um, area in the top left-hand corner. And actually what's going on is a much more complicated set of journeys and movements within and across borders. Um, and this is, of course, just the African context. You've got a global context where migration is happening uh, on, on, on all so in all sorts of different ways that we don't often hear about. So what we wanted to do, if you like, in the research is to unpack these backstories, <coughs> to kind of understand more of what was going on and is still going on that might have led people to make the decision, a few of the, of the total of people who are moving, across the Mediterranean itself. So I just really want to highlight three sets of findings in particular. Um, obviously, we go into much more detail in the book. And one of the reasons we wrote the book um, was because although we'd produced, uh, I think, four policy reports as the as the project unfolded, precisely because we wanted to get these stories into the into the public frame um, as as these policy developments were occurring, is because we wanted to capture the stories in more detail. And particularly, what we do in the book that's different than some of the other outputs we've produced from the project is to really try and capture the essence of people's uh, the the backstories, the lives that exist 
well before the arrival on a beach of Europe or, or beyond. Because if you start to see people as human beings rather as migrants who come to Europe, then actually there has a whole series of things going on uh, in their lives that lead to that particular outcome. Um, so the first finding, I think, which is worth highlighting and which is very prominent in the book is that, as Martha has already said, while some people specifically wanted to come to Europe, actually it was a very small proportion of the people that we spoke to. Most people, the vast majority, had initially travelled to uh, neighbouring countries, they'd initially travelled to get safety, or they travelled to get work in some cases. Then for a whole range of different reasons, and it is really important not to generalise about this, they had decided to move on. Now, the situation in Libya has become w more well documented over the last six months, I would say, uh, but of course it's been like that for many years. Um, and when we talked to people about those experiences in Libya, they told us in graphic detail some of the things that had happened to them. And I have to say, I think the stories that we heard coming out of Libya were some of the most horrendous of all the stories that we heard during our uh, research. We also spoke to many Syrians who talked about their initial uh, need to leave Syria and then their difficulty in rebuilding a life elsewhere. So they talked about being in a camp in, in, in Jordan or Lebanon, about the difficulties of securing access to education for their children, healthcare for their family members, uh, being in Turkey and unable to work uh, in ways that uh, would allow them to build anything uh, like a, a future for themselves. But they also talked about that lack of having a sense of belonging anywhere, the lack of papers, the inability to, to know that there was a sense of a future. And so the people that we spoke to had never necessarily intended at the outset to come to Europe, but in the context of those situations in Libya and uh, uh, in Jordan and Lebanon and elsewhere had decided to move on. Which kind of brings me to our second point, which is it's not really, although our book is subtitled uh, Journeys Over Land and Sea, actually it's not really in many cases accurate to talk about journeys at all because journeys implies a singular movement. It implies that you get on a plane or a boat or make a decision at point A and then you end up at point B. And the fact is that for many of the people arriving in 2015 and, of course, since and before, um, the, the, the point at which they ended up in Europe was, was the end of a, a long and often complicated, protracted and fragmented journey, which had involved multiple migration decisions, and had often in some cases involved periods of months, years, tens of years in other countries. Um, so for example, the, the cases that stand out, I think, particularly in the book, are um, Afghans living in Iran, for whom the decision to move was often as a consequence, not just of what was happening in Afghanistan, because many of them were born in Iran or had lived in Iran for many years, but a combination of the situa situation for Afghans in, in Iran, which is one of discrimination and marginalization, uh, fears of being returned to Afghanistan, where there is also conflict, uh, forced recruitment, or not exactly forced, but persuaded recruitment into the Iranian army to work uh, to, to fight in, in Syria, um, and then seeing that there might be hope beyond that um, and people moving into Europe. So there was no singular factor that drove them on that decision to move, but rather this uh, combination. Um, so I think it's really important, as Martha says, that we need to look at the in-between, the factors that uh, shape and influences people's decisions to move on beyond that initial uh, decision to leave a country of origin. And I think the main finding of the book in a way and of the research project as a whole is that the focus has been so uh, fixated on that top left-hand corner that the policy um, 
uh, orientation of policy thinking has really been about how to stop and reduce the flow into Europe without in any way, shape or form considering those factors that lead that to be the case in the first place. And if you have this very simplistic push-pull idea of why people move, then actually your policy apparatus becomes incredibly limited by that because you're actually left with very uh, few tools other than, uh, as we're seeing, putting up these kinds of, of barriers. So for us, it's really about how you engage with um, let's call it root causes, although root causes has become a slightly problematic term, but root causes that goes beyond just the, the initial conflict, but the other factors that are going into the pot in terms of shaping people's journeys. Um, and I, I just wanted to conclude really by giving you one example of the, of the unintended consequences of policy, because we've seen so many of those over these last uh, few years, and not just in Europe actually, more generally. So many of the Eritreans that we spoke to talked about their journey um, initially to other parts of Eritrea and then across the border to Sudan. And one of the stories that runs through the book, and it's not uh, their real names, but one of the, the couples that we talked to in the book, talked to and report in the book, started off that journey initially going to Sudan, thinking that they could build a life there, that they could have their, their, their life there together. And then after a year, uh, deciding that actually that was going to be impossible and feeling increasingly anxious about the possibility of being returned to Eritrea and then back into this forced conscription. And one of the ironies of the European policy response has been that as a consequence of the cartoon process, European governments are now paying effectively the Sudanese government to clamp down on irregular migrants in the Sudan and therefore picking people up on the street and sending them back to Eritrea. So that couple's decision to leave the Sudan and eventually come to Europe through Libya, as it happened, and, and not with a good experience on the way, was driven in significant part by European policy. So that kind of goes, I know Jessica's going to talk about this more in her presentation, but this, this is the, the problem. If you look only at that left, top left-hand corner and you ignore all those backstories, then you can actually end up doing things that exacerbate not just the problem as far as Europe defines it, but also the experience of the people who are actually on the move. Thank you very much indeed. Um, let's move on now to Ahmed al-Rashid, who's a Syrian campaigner from Aleppo and who now lives in London. Um, you arrived in London after a perilous journey across Europe from Syria via Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Um, could you tell us some of the factors in your decision to travel, to travel to Europe, um, and take us through some of the journey? Thank you very much for having me here. Um, I would like to start by saying um, I never wanted to, to, to leave my country. I did not want to leave my family, my friends, my language, my history, um, my loved ones, my everything behind, and to come to Europe where I do not know anyone. I've got no clue about the people, um, the perceptions, whatever. Um, it was a very, very hard decision to make in 2013, late 2012, um, when there was no way to stay in eastern Aleppo at that time because of the, um, you know, the, 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 the dropping of battle bombs, and at the same time, you know, the knives um, of, of Islamic State and, and Jabhat al-Nusra and as a, other radical element groups at that time. Um, at that time, it was not called ISIS, the Islamic State, but it still was an extremist group. So I've decided to move to the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Though I was in Aleppo, it was easier for me to move to Turkey. 
Um, but I decided to go to uh, Northern Iraq because I'm Kurdish, um, I speak Kurdish. Um, I've got friends there who moved there last year or something before. So was it made it easier for me. We've got other contacts, you know, um, I speak the language. So I moved there um, and it was great for me. Um, um, I, I got a job, I, I joined the UN, I worked for the UNICEF for some time as a communication for development. Um, it was a great experience. Uh, but at the same time, it was heartbreaking because I saw thousands and thousands of fellow Syrians, you know, after surviving the bombing, the shelling, you know, the sieges, when they made it to the border, and, you know, they were bust in a, and they were dropped in a, in a, in a no-man land and they were surrounded by a fence and they were surrounded by security forces. And these people thought that probably it's going to be a week, two, a month or so, so they can go back. <coughs> Today it's almost seven years, you know, and over seven years, and soon it will be one decade since the conflict, you know, or the Arab Spring started. One decade, you know, and, and time flies, you know, and, 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 and these people, you know, um, prior to, to, to their flight, you know, uh, for me, I mean, I've met hundreds of these people, doctors, engineers, um, um, you know, um, teachers, journalists, uh, people from different walks of life, you know, and... Um, most importantly, you know, Syria was a middle-income country. You know, it was not a poor country. Um, we produced labor to the, the other parts of, of the Arab world, and, and we got, you know, tourism, and we've got thousands of, of, of Europeans and Americans and, North, you know, North Americans and people from different parts of the world coming to us, you know, and praising us about our hospitality, um, you know, to Palestinians um, for, for a very long time, though I've got a lot of reservation about how the government, you know, kind of uh, welcomed the Palestinians or how we welcomed, you know, um, people in Iraq after the invasion of Iraq or then in 2006 after the clashes between, you know, or the troubles between um, Israel and, and Hezbollah. Um, but again, um, it was for people, um, when, when, you when you flee, it's, you are in this mood of, of survival, you know, that you focus on the immediate things, that I want water, food, and safety. But once you settle in, you get to this idea that, you know, uh, it's not only about surviving, you need to thrive. I am a doctor, but here I am selling vegetables and, and fruits, you know, and, and, and my children cannot go to school, you know. And, and, and I am not allowed to work. And if I'm a refugee in Lebanon, you know, I'm about over 50% of Syrians, you know, they do not attend school. We are talking about a lost generation. Everyone talks about the conflict would, would come to an end. So we want to rebuild. Who is going to rebuild this country if, if, if over 50%, you know, of, of the, 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 the students or the children are out of education? If the Syrians, you know, over 50% with, with Syrians, you know, with with university degree are literally, or, or secondary degree, are in Europe. This is great news to Europe because they are the most intelligent, smart people, you know, after losing everything, they're so determined to carry on and rebuild their lives. And those are still there, you know, they're the most vulnerable or the, who, who couldn't afford it. So for me, um, still, um, I've never thought of Europe at that time, after two years. But there came a time when, when the city of Mosul favored the Islamic State. And I was working at that time, and I saw the, the, the enslavement of Yazidis, and I saw the brutality, I saw the, 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 the killings and then the beheadings. And for me, this was, I, I, I thought, like, I, I fled the Syrian hell. I ended up the Iraqi hell, you know. And at the same time, Iraqi, over two million Iraqis were entirely displaced. And these people in the northern, well, in the northern Kurdish region, there's a lot of, 
Well, they were generous, they were welcoming, but, but because of the political, social, you know, economic situation, a lot of people are fighting over scarce resources at that time, you know. And then you got the, the World Food Program cutting food, you know, and people say, okay, I'm sitting here, no work, no school, sometimes, you know, and now they're cutting food. What shall I do? Sit and die. At the same time, we've got, you know, people who already sometimes, you know, well, some of them made it to Europe, and we sort of like the media attention, and this was the picture of Alan Kerry that suddenly um, there's a refugee crisis, you know, in Europe. It is not a crisis for Europe. It's a crisis for Syrians. It's a crisis for Iraqis. It's a crisis for Afghanistanis, you know, Afghanis. It's a crisis for Sudanis, you know, it's a crisis for Eritreans who could not, you know, resume their lives for, for, for the last many, 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 many years. It is a crisis for these people. Europe is the biggest economic, political, whatever block on earth, you know, with over 500 million people, with lots of resources, I think they can manage. 85% of these migrants or whatever refugees are not in Europe. Yet, these, you know, people are not making a big fuss about it. Why did no one talk about the refugee crisis before 2015? But once it becomes a European crisis or a Eurocentric, it becomes a crisis. And the media and everything, you know, <laughs> brings attention about it. So for me, I decided to move, and I moved to southeast of Turkey. Southeast of Turkey was unbelievable because, like, there was a clashes between the PKK, the Kurdish insurgents, and being a Kurdish Syrian in that part of the country was a crazy idea. Um, then I moved to Izmir. There I met, I met another smuggler, you know, um, um, who got me to the um, to to Kos Island in Greece, then um, to to Athens. After that, I got a fake passport to um, to Marseille in France, then to Calabar two weeks. Then I ended up in the UK. But again, when I talk about smugglers, you know, today if you go to social media, for for, for some Syrians, smugglers are national heroes. Literally, and I'm not exaggerating, because these are the Robin Hoods, you know, who are very good at beating, you know, coast guards and, 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 and security services and the police and making these people, the desperate people, you know, to, to reach their destination. But again, the majority of these people do not want to come to Europe. The majority are staying near the border in Turkey, in Jordan, you know, in Turkey over three million people, um, you know, are Syrians. Um, in, in Jordan, um, about over 600,000 people, you know. In Lebanon, over 100 million, uh, over, over 1 uh, million people is about 25% of their population, you know. In Iraq, over 250,000 people. These people do not want to come to Europe. And I've seen some people, you know, um, they got contacted by, by, by UNICEF or other for resettlement. They said, no, we do not want to go. We're just hoping that the conflict would come to an end so we can go back to our lives, you know. They do not want to come to Europe. There's some people, obviously, the young people, if you look again at this idea of that they're all young people, of course. I'm talking about a conflict of half, half a million people lost their lives. The majority are young people because they are the fuel, you know, they are the target of, of the government, of, of the, the, the militias, you know. And again, um, these people do not want, you know, to, to come to Europe. They're hoping that one day to come, the, the conflict comes, so can go back. But sadly, there'd be no solution. There's been absolutely, you know, um, 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 no solution, and especially when you have got nothing to lose. Once you lost your family members, your job, your entitlements, nothing, you've got nothing to lose. It's just a trip, you know, it's just a short, probably 30, one hour, two hours, three hours, one day journey, and you get to the European land or the European dream or the, whatever they call it. It used to be the, the, the American dream. Now it's a European dream. You've got nothing to lose. You made it, and, and, and you're there.
Because again, remember, like I've got people um, in Iraq and, and in Turkey, when we're there, they said, you are our, our brothers and sisters, you know, you are guests. For instance, the narrative in Turkey at that time, we are welcoming, you know, our Sunni brothers and sisters in Turkey who are fleeing. They are the Muhajirin and we are, you know, the Ansar. You know, they are, we are welcoming them. They're using a very religious term. But again, this idea of, it's not a rights-based, you know, what does, does a guest mean? What are my limits? For how long I can be a guest? You know, and when you see also, like, for instance, you know, like, someone got married to Europe, that, okay, I've got five years leave to remain, for instance, you know, I can access these services, I can apply, I can study, I can work, you know. It means that I have opportunities, that my children will have opportunities. But for a lot of people there, you know, you've got no refugee status, you've got, I don't know, the, the different names or categories, and people do not, do not feel comfortable because they feel that the conflict might even drag one more decade. You know, so to, 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 to finish off, um, just to, to, you know, um, to, to conclude, um, it's very important to, to note, you know, um, these people, you know, they did not want to leave. They do not want to leave. You know, they are hoping that the international community would come to bring an end to this human carnage in the 21st century that they kept saying no more again, no more again, but it's happening again and again and again and again. You know, so um, I'm hoping that um, they will be able to address the root causes of the crisis. Building walls is not going to solve the problem. Always, always people will find a ways, you know. Building walls and, 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 and it's not going to solve the problem. Never, ever. You know, um, well, it might reduce it, but it's not going to solve it, you know. So um, also the, the, the last thing I would like to make, and I'm sorry if I've been over my time, um, you know, um, the journeys, you know, does not end when people set foot on, you know, on, on the European soil. This is just the beginning of a new journey. The journey of integration, the journey of assimilation. It's a very long journey. Some people succeed, some people do not succeed. So the story does not end when I put, you know, my feet on the European soil. It's just a new story. It's just a new start. So um, for a lot of these people, and I keep repeating the same thing every time, for a lot of these people, a lot of these people back in Syria and beyond, they had jobs. Today they are jobless. Many of these people, you know, they um, had homes. A lot of these people today are homeless. The only thing today, um, you know, the, that these people have is hope. Hope in the international community or, or policymaker. The only thing they have, hope. So please, please do not make them hopeless. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ahmed al-Rashid. Um, Jessica. Thank you. Uh, um, there's been much debate in Europe about push versus pull factors in why people choose to actually travel to Europe. Um, and Europe's response, for the most part, has been guided by government strategies of containment, restriction, deterrence, um, for example, <coughs> the EU-Turkey deal. Um, do you think that these approaches will be successful in deterring migrant journeys to Europe. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to present research that I conducted around a similar time as, as Heaven and colleagues. So this was in the summer of 2015, and my colleague Rich Mallet and I set out to ask the question, is it possible to change someone's mind about migrating? 
Um, at the time, policy responses in Europe, as uh, indeed they still today, were focused about stopping flows. And these responses took two main forms. So one were direct control measures. So these are your borders, um, fences, and your um, coast guards in, in Libya. And the other were deterrent measures. And these are things like anti-migration campaigns, which try to change people's minds before they even set out on the journey to Europe. So just to give you one example quickly, the government of Denmark took out um, some ads in Lebanese newspapers a few years ago. And in these ads, they described tightened asylum regulations in Denmark for, for asylum seekers. And in this way, they try to stop people from even think about coming to Denmark. And this is just one example of many. So our study explored whether such an approach works. And we did this by um, investigating decision-making processes amongst um, 52 um, refugees and other migrants who had um, arrived in Europe. Um, and we looked at their journeys and the decisions they made um, at different points of their journeys along the way. Um, so to answer your question whether these approaches work, I'm going to give you three key findings from our research. And the first one is that deterrence doesn't drastically alter the migration decision. And that um, is exactly what you said just now. Um, we found that anti-migration messages are unlikely to drastically change people's decisions about coming to Europe in the first place. We found, again, like you said, that people made that decision because they felt they had no choice. Um, they were fleeing war, oppression, violence, um, and limited opportunities. And they made that decision on the basis of trusted information. And this is information that is conveyed through their social networks, through family and friends. And we found that um, the information that governments share just doesn't feature in, in these networks. And in fact, we found that migration policies um, rarely featured in migration decisions. And I'll come back to that point in a minute. Um, but before I do that, um, I want to show you the actual journey of one person we interviewed and um, to show you how, um, how Musa moved on despite being exposed to constant anti-migration messages on his journey. Um, so this is Musa, who is from Damascus, and we interviewed him in Berlin in, in 2015. And um, Musa decided to, to leave um, Damascus when the bombings just got worse and worse. And he decided to move on with his family. And he, he made the journey that, that was very familiar from the news at the time. So he moved to Turkey and then to Greece and um, then crossed into Macedonia and was walking from, in Macedonia, was walking on foot to Serbia when he was exposed to direct anti-migration messages for the first time. So he was, um, he was caught by the Macedonian police um, and they took him and his travel companions and returned, returned him to Greece. Um, but this didn't deter Musa from, um, from continuing on his journey. As soon as he could, he tried again, and this time he did make it through, um, um, through um, Macedonia into Serbia. From there, he moved to Hungary, 
And then in Hungary, he faced the next threat. So he was again caught by police. He was put in a reception center. And um, in that reception center, he saw other Syrians being beaten with sticks and tasers. Again, this didn't deter him from continuing with his journey. Um, as soon as he was able to leave the reception center, he pushed on to Germany. Our second um, finding around policies is that diversion is much more likely than prevention. And we found that migration policies, that um, control measures, can influence the trajectory of people. Um, so what I mean is that migration policies don't stop people from coming to Europe in the first place, but they can influence how they travel and where they go, um, essentially moving migration flows from one country to the next. Um, so the examples that you immediately think of as well is, for example, the um, Hungarian border. Um, when, when that fence was erected in the late summer of 2015, um, flows didn't stop, but they diverted to Croatia and Slovenia instead. And um, initially, when, when the Turkey deal was first introduced, we saw that flows to Greece um, reduced rapidly immediately, but at the same time, the, the, the central Mediterranean route started picking up in terms of numbers again. Um, so um, direct control measures um, can divert flows, essentially passing the buck on from one country to the next. Now it's currently sitting at the edges of Europe, um, but they don't prevent migration from happening in the absolute sense. And then our final finding is that jobs and education are what really matters. Um, we found that it wasn't migration policies that shaped people's decisions. It was broader public policies around access to education for, um, for their kids and themselves. It was labor market opportunities, and it was safety and human rights. And it was basically about finding a place um, where you can make a future. Um, so to come back to Musa, um, so Musa did eventually make it to Germany, and he said um, he wanted to go there because it's a country where you can find work. And um, we heard similar sentiments across um, many of our other interviews. And on the whole, almost half of our respondents were influenced by public policies on education or work in terms of their migration destination decision. Um, so we drew um, a number of policy recommendations from our work, and we concluded that um, policymakers should be stepping away from unilateral migration measures um, to a more coordinated approach, because as we heard already today, migration is not just a movement from A to B, it's a much more um, complicated process than that. Um, we also found, like, like heaven, that journeys tend to be protracted, expensive, and risky, and that the experiences along the journey, along the way, shape where people end up. Um, because deterrent policies have little effect on stopping overall migration um, movements, um, what should be done is to manage migration better. And we suggested that um, it one way to do that is to focus on the three stages of the migration process. So the first one is about making journeys safer. Um, so we all know the numbers. We know that those people that um, did make it um, often pay a fortune and had very traumatic experiences. 
part of that um, policy recommendations is about actually making the journey safer. So search and rescue missions, um, but of course crossing the Mediterranean is just one part of a risky journey and there needs to be a greater focus on protecting people before they even reach the shores of the Mediterranean. So including in places like Libya. Um, we also found that people travel on these risky journeys because they have lost faith in formal mechanisms or because they don't have access to these mechanisms in the first place. So the key way to make journeys safer is to offer the, them these mechanisms in the first place and is to increase, increase and diversify legal migration pathways. And um, a number of different examples have been put forward in recent years, including humanitarian visas, skills um, or jobs matching, um, temporary migration schemes, quota enlargements, and study scholarships. The second point is around making a faster and fairer asylum system. Um, we all know that EU member states treat and process asylum claims unevenly, and these shape trajectories of refugees, um, but also lead to very unequal outcomes. And on the whole, um, this is creating a small number of winners, but a large number of losers, which are the border countries in Europe, and also hundreds and thousands of asylum seekers. Um, in 2016, um, a quota system, the so-called fairness mechanism, was introduced, um, but it hasn't had much impact so far, and only 5% of the reloca relocation target has been met. So more pressure needs to be put on member states who are refusing to play um, their part. It's also a great concern, actually, in recent days that even progressive um, role models like Germany are now considering upper limits in asylum applications. So definitely more needs to be done here. And um, the final point is around the really big economic and social benefits to be had from migration. Um, for, for migrants in their communities, um, but also host and origin countries. And our recommendation is that policymakers should make the most of the social and economic benefits to be had from migration. And examples include investing in integration programs for new arrivals, but importantly, um, increasing the opportunities for legal migration. Um, when we wrote this report two years ago, I'd say the last point was probably um, the most contested in the very toxic public debate that was going on at the time. It um, hasn't changed um, that much, but I do have a sense that things are shifting. And the two compacts that are currently being discussed, the one on migration and refugees, do present huge opportunities to reap more of the benefits to be had of migration. And just last week, um, the UN Secretary General pu published a report that will um, be an input to the zero draft of the migration report. And I was pleased to see that it was entitled Making Migration Work for All. And the focus was already much more on, um, on the opportunities to be had for migration rather than the so-called migration crisis, which we've seen in previous reports. Thank you very much indeed. There's a wealth of experience you've heard from the panel um, and the complexities of the subject um, are, are daunting, um, but they're also realistic. And I'm sure it stimulated some questions. 
Um, if you'd like to ask a question, just pop up your hand and um, would you state your name and your organization if that's relevant? And uh, we look right around. I'm going to start right at the back there to begin with. And we've also got questions coming in from our online uh, participants. Hi, Mel Melanie Teff from UNICEF UK. I wanted to ask the, the panelists if you had any sense from your research or from um, your, your um, contacts with communities as to what percentage of the, the people's decisions for where they're headed relates to trying to reunify with family members and whether um, people are aware of any of the legal routes that uh, exist for um, being able to reunify with family members or whether those legal routes either don't exist or just don't function in practice so people turn to smugglers rather than trying to go through legal routes. Heaven, would you like that one for the point of view of family members? And yeah, such? I mean, I, I think the very clear um, finding of our research was not necessarily being able to say something substantive about the proportions of people, but rather that family reunion was a very important aspect of people's decision-making, particularly in the so-called Eastern route, in terms of people who were at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, who already had family members living in European countries and for whom reuniting with those family members was one of the key factors that shaped where they wanted to go. Um, and many also talked about the difficulties of being able to do that in any formal way or feeling that it was possible, um, but that would take years, you know, literally years. And so that wasn't enough to make them think it wasn't worth taking the risk. In a sense. While you were traveling, Ahmed, did you meet people whom you um, came perhaps from your country or people you'd actually been next to um, while you were traveling? Did they talk about families? Were they worried about that they'd been split up? Was that part of it? Well, there are two things. Um, they, or well, some of them had no family members whatsoever in Europe. Some of them were children sent by their families to Europe so they can later on come on a family reunion visa. Um, you know, and others, they had one or two members of their families, you know, in, in one of the EU countries, that they wanted to go there and, and, and you know, um, join um, and their families. So you have kind of a wide range of, of different motives of why people were moving. Yeah. And would you think, uh, Dr. Liu, that the keeping families together, which is um, one of the arguments where you have large gatherings in refugee camps, but they actually lead to their own problems, is that a priority <coughs> of keeping families together? Well, I can't really answer that question because this, this is not really part of our mandate no. as MSF. The thing I can say, though, is the fact that um, it was very clear to us that uh, a lot of people in despair of reaching out a safer place will use a policy of family reunification. Mm -hmm. And then one of the stories that stays with me when I was in Samos is about a woman, a mother, and then she was talking about her children. And all of a sudden, she I always thought that she had three children because we've seen her in our clinic. And all of a sudden, she talked about a fourth child. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I said, you have a fourth child? He said, oh, well. And then she looked at me, and then she said, well. And then finally, the story goes that basically she sent her fourth daughter on her way. And then basically, uh, she, her hope 
is it's going to be easier for her to be smuggled. It's going to be easier as well to find a way, meaning that she's probably going to sell her body to get all the way to the northern of Europe. And then her final and utmost hope is there's going to be family reunification at the end of that awful journey. So this is what people are ready to use. And as you know, a lot of people, uh, the panelists have been saying, you know, people are creating their journey as they are going along, as they might see possible opportunities, if you can call it this way, because I don't think it's really opportunities, just to outsmart what is going on. Thank you. Question there. Yes. Yeah. Microphone, gentleman in the middle. Hi, thank you so far. This is a fascinating discussion. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, I'm Mark Galloway from the International Broadcasting Trust. So our interest, one of our interests is media coverage. Ahmed, now that you're living in the UK, I mean, there's a, such a lot of media coverage of migrants and refugees, but do you feel that some of the points you're making are actually coming through? And how could we be more effective? You know, we've got organizations like UNICEF who have very good media access. How can we be more effective in getting some of these key messages across? I was part of uh, a BBC documentary called Exodus, Our Journey to Europe, the three-hour documentary. And it went like, it was shown here in the UK, in the US, and, and, and beyond, you know. And I think one unique thing about that documentary was the story of five up to seven people. They were not talking about 65 million people. When you make it personal, it becomes very, very powerful. I was not talking about, you know, the 65, you know, faceless Figures. I was talking about Ahmed, an English, you know, student who did Shakespeare, and you know, he did Chaucer and the the Renaissance and Victorian. So people could relate that we are not different. It was a doctor. It was a, you know an English teacher. It, it was a mother. You know. So when you make it personal, you know, um, and again, um, it, it it kind of it, it breaks the bridges. People can relate that. Well, they're telling that they are invaders and and and, and they are rapists or whatever. Which, which is not the case, you know. So I think it is very important, you know, um, when, it come, when it comes to representation, you know. Um, I, I remember uh, uh, going to, to many places, for instance, about where there were events and, and conferences talking about Syria and, or the migration crisis, and there was not a single Syrian present, you know. There's some conference talking about the future of Syria, and, and no Syrians involved. You know, and people talking about the refugee crisis and the movement, and there's no single refugee. I mean, I, I don't know how, what is the logic, but again, um, but on the, on the other hand, there were a lot of events and, and initiatives, you know, when people who made the journeys, you know, um, were involved, <laughs> were invited, because having their, you know, um, insight is vital. I mean, you cannot say, I understand how difficult the journey is, because you never did it. You, you read about it, you watch it on TV, but you've never been through it because the details, like my journey was about two months, 55, you know, um, days. Includes a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, you know, stories of smugglers and, 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 and police brutality and, and people and, 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 you know, strangers kindness. So um, it's very important, you know, to include the, the person, you know, to, 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 to include these people and engage them. Because if you keep, keep them away, you know, um, it's not going to solve the problem. Well, there's a question coming online, which, which follows on rather from that, from Gianmarco Trenna of the Sogo Foundation, who asks, 
are there any recommendations here um, as to how to influence positively citizens' perceptions of refugees in Europe? Um, what are the main drivers that influence that? I mean, right at the back of this, you know, is the fact that there is, in most of the countries we've talked about, strong, popular, local feeling, which may be both helpful or very, very unhelpful. How do you influence in the way that you would influence it? Anything? I can try and answer that on the basis of some work that my colleague Helen Dempster did here at ODI. Um, I, I would agree with you, Ahmed, that those stories are extremely powerful, but I think the, the problem is that not everyone watches these kind of stories. So so I'd say, you know, I'd love for the people who live live near me, who have their um, pro-Brexit posters and their England flags hanging up to be watching documentaries like that, but we know um, they don't. And um, what recent research on um, public perceptions of migration has shown is that people are not... E strongly pro or anti-migration, but that they, they, they can be classified into several groups. And um, migration or messages about migration need to be specifically targeted at those subgroups. And some subgroups might respond better to um, hearing very specific stories. Other groups might um, might respond better if you tell them about the economic benefits of migration. Um, so, so the answer is that these responses need to be localized. They need to be very, very targeted. Well, that's difficult for any nation. Yeah. Costs money. It yes. Done. Well, yeah, I agree with, with what you're saying, but I think that there's two things that happen in terms of of migrants that somehow went viral. Everybody remember the washing of a little alien on the beach. And everybody remember the CNN footage on, on auction of, of African people in Libya. So somehow, well, it went viral. And, 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 then, and then, you know, this is when Macron said something got to happen. This is in, inhuman. So the thing is, there is something that, that even if, if there's something about if you don't create an emotion and if it doesn't, if it doesn't shock people at this stage, very little will work. We've been trying to use the rationale of saying all the migrants refugee are not in Europe, guys. Doesn't work. You know, we've been telling them, no, they're not like Hamid said, they're not rapists, they're not the people fleeing for their life. Doesn't work. We've got all the data, we've got all the statistics. Rational argument doesn't work. We're in the world that rationality doesn't work anymore, unfortunately. Can I say, um just one point from my experience, that it is extremely rare that something which fig figures, even when it figures very much in Western Europe's media and has an emotional base to it, which is something both moving, which everybody talks about, rarely moves a government. It is a myth that the media tip governments into direct action. And so th that's having been through a number of them and a number of fairly well-known episodes. That's the experience. And, and that is really one of the difficulties um, that we're working within. And I, I absolutely can relate to Joanne's point about, you know, 
feeling somewhat despairing of how you start to engage with this when you present evidence. And we did so all the way through the project. I mean, you know, we were very determined with this particular piece of research not to present the evidence kind of two years down the line when the project concluded as now, but rather from the beginning uh, of the work, really feeding these kinds of, um, you know, the, the, the complexities and the, and the challenges to the narratives in right from the beginning. But I think the bottom line is, and it's back to why I put migration crisis in brackets is that attitudes to migration are not necessarily about migration. I mean, migration is a, a touchstone issue for a whole raft of other things. And the problem with migration policy, a bit like the problem with migration politics, is if you just then focus the solution on migration or dealing with the consequences of migration or addressing people's anxieties about migration, you lose sense of the broader context of concerns and anxieties that migration has come to represent. So somehow we've got to um, re, it, it sounds ironic, but I think it's very true, is to move the debate away from migration. Now, most people are saying we need to talk about migration more. Personally, I've talked about it a lot over the last 25 years, and so have a lot of other people. And just talking about migration as a specific narrow topic doesn't really do it. But talking about what it is that migration represents in terms of changes in community, anxieties about, let's call it globalization, but you know, shifting working patterns, anxieties about conflict and security. To me, it seems that those are the context within which migration both occurs, but also within which attitudes are formed. And so in a way, taking the debate away from just migration could take some of the political heat out of the politics and stop politicians using migration as an excuse for lots of other things that they do, which is what we're seeing. Anybody else on that? Or can we take another question from the floor? Uh, yes, here. Just to carry on on, on this discussion, because Heaven is, uh, sorry, I'm Sarah Pantoliano from ODI as well. Um, Heaven is absolutely right. Uh, we have been trying to present evidence on these issues now for a number of years. They've been going nowhere. And the problem is not just influencing the public. It is indeed influencing the political leadership that hides behind the public. Uh, I mean, Joanne said it very eloquently. Migration is unbeatable. Look at your panel. Everybody on your panel, perhaps with your exception, Katie, is a migrant or a refugee, including have who's migrated to Italy. I'm a migrant. Migration is a reality of, of the world. And, you know, governments know that. You can contain it. Containment doesn't work. Investment in developing, in developing countries is not going to stop migration. They know that very well. But it is a way you know, to sell something that in their in their minds appeases the public, you know, and diverts attentions away from from other issues. In fact, I see a lot more maturity from the business community, you know, trying to engage with this issue much more intelligently around some of the labor requirements that Europe does have, for instance, and, and, and encouraging migration, you know, against some of the, the what the political leadership does not. But to me the crux of the issue is how do we incentivize the political leadership to to have the courage to champion, to engage with issues in a different way. And that's where we're failing collectively as um, experts on this issue. Can I take another question? And it's just behind. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to the panel. Uh, my name's Dalia Ranki from the Norwegian Refugee Council. 
Um, just a question slightly different, more about the migratory routes. What does the panel think about what humanitarian and even development actors should do in terms of response uh, to be able to do it in a humanitarian principled way and to avoid um, the potential of complicity with upholding uh, migration policies to prevent people from being refugees, being migrants and moving? Well, I think that um, I think in all the crises nowadays, we humanitarian are being co-opted, like it or not. That is that is what. And then the thing is, is you have to decide as an organization how much you want to be co-opted and be co-opted for people, and then being co-opted to striking the balance that is going to be more for the people you're trying to help than for for the authorities of government or whatever. And I think for me. The, 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 the dilemma, we face it on a daily basis everywhere. And the worst place we're facing it is actually in Libya, because we're working in those detention centers. And then, and then people are being starved, people are being abused, people are being tortured. And then we, we, we do first aid, and then when they're very, very sick, we send them to hospital. And then what I said in the press conference I've given in <coughs> September was saying, you know, at one point I was asking my people, my team has just said, how far are we going to go? If we don't speak out, we are becoming the enablers of those policies. And then for me, the only thing we can do now is to make noises about, about things. And if we don't make noises about, the, about you know, what is going on, then I think we are being fully, completely co-opted. Yep. Thanks. I think my experience, I think, has been a unique one because when it comes to the humanitarians, you know, there's always somewhere there in Africa or in Asia, they're faraway land. But today, the crisis is here in Europe. And I think one of the unique experiences uh, with, the, with the Greek refugee crisis was it showed how inept sometimes, you know, the humanitarian section is. The corruption, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the resources. I mean, I, I was reading one report, they said about, you know, they sent, uh, I mean, about more than 50%, you know, of the funding was wasted, completely wasted. I remember um, we were, where people were on the move, you know, and in, in Macedonia and in other parts of Europe, you know, it was not the big names. It was not the big guys on the ground responding. It was the grassroots who responded, you know, and there was a massive movement of grassroots because we understand, like, um, for the case of, of UNHCR or big names, they cannot go to Cali or Prairie because funding, you know. I mean, you say that you're independent or whatever, but it comes to funding. You know, if the government is not happy, it means that you've got funding. So um, I think well, this is one of the things, you know, would come to the humanitarian. At the same time, we've got a rise in the business sector you know, intervening or coming into the, the you know, the, the humanitarian field that, okay, we are ready to help you with apps, with beautiful tents, you know, that gets cold in the, in the summer and, and, and hot during the, the, the winter. So we're seeing a competition because for many of these people, it's a great opportunity. Um, so, um, as we've talked about, a lot of funding is, go is going towards stopping flows that, um, at, that are in Europe, and some of those are disguised under, under the heading of protection, but 
essentially they are still about um, stopping flaws. And my gut instinct as a, as a, as a researcher and knowing the other evidence on this topic was this is not going to work. But if you look more closely at, at um, some of the interview data, if you look at Heaven's finding that most people don't intend to come to Europe in the first place, also interviews we did with Eritreans and Ethiopia, you'll find that people do initially try to make a future there. So if some of that money is being spent towards improving conditions for, for people there, for um, opening up um, uh, schooling, for their opening up um, access to education for their children, and also improving labor market opportunities for people, um, that um, could could help to improve the lives of people and potentially stop them from making risky and dangerous journeys. Not all of them, but some of them. Well, there's a question here from Fontini from Lesvos saying, well, what about the people who already live in the host communities? Isn't it important to have their views represented? It says, we tend not to get mentioned. That's the assumption that the host community is going to agree with matters of education and supplying jobs. How do you do that? Is it important that the host communities themselves have a say? Yeah, it, it is. It, of course, it's important. But I think the, the one of the it comes back to my last point, actually, that one of the problems with migration policy is that oriented towards the problem of migration and therefore the group that's defined as being either problematic or in need. And we have this very sort of simplistic dichotomy between the two. And in most communities, what you'd want are policies that address the community within which there are also people who are migrants and refugees. Now, there are exceptions to that where people are in camps. And unfortunately, in Lesbos, of course, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people being prevented from moving on. And so therefore, you have people effectively stuck on Lesbos, which is not an island that's necessarily able to provide the kind of opportunities for integration that might exist elsewhere in Europe. So, you know, it's it has to be a whole community uh, approach. And one of the problems, and it comes back to the kind of politics of this, is that communities are being set against one another. So it's not just refugees and migrants who are marginalised in a lot of this. There are many other communities that are being marginalised. And then they're positioned against one another in terms of access to resources. Um, and I think just, just going back to some of the points about the humanitarian question, um, yes, humanitarianism is important. And yes, providing opportunities for people is important. But rights are also important. And in a lot of this discussion, we lose sense of the rights-based approach in all of it, that some of these other things that we're talking about stem from having rights in the first place. So if you give people rights, the things that flow from that, um, like access to education and opportunities for their, their children, for example, come from that. But I have to say I agree with the, the question that's come in, that this needs a whole community response if we want to have any kind of real sense of, of either integration on the one hand or, or tackling some of these political and other um, scapegoating, for want of a better word, that we're seeing taking place. Joanne, did you want to come in on this? I just wanted to add, and I agree with what you're saying. I think, I think and, and thank you very much, you know, for the question on host community, because I think it's key. And then if, if people are integrated and if people, and if people are welcomed, that makes a huge difference. And I think what is going on, and one of the things we've been facing in Jordan is the fact that we have been able to get a prize, for example. This is a simple example, but we've been able to get a prize a cheap price for pneumococcal vaccine for people in crisis from the big pharma. So it's going to be five dollars. And so basically right now Jordan government can vaccinate the Syrian refugee for five dollars but have to pay between seventy to eighty dollars for Jordanian children for Jordan children. And so what is the consequence of that? 
is they're not vaccinating anyone. So yes, host community is mothers. Any more questions from the floor? Do we have any hands? Yes, over there. Hi, um, I'm Shiva from Red Eye UK. And um, we talk a lot about host communities and integration, but how often do you think like these refugees that come in are integrating, integrating? When are they ever, like, they do eventually become accepted, but when does that integration need to stop to preserve their own, own culture? And, like, I can see from Jack's Twitter, I mean, Ahmed's Twitter handle, he's got at Jack Ahmed. Like, are you also, like, in, is that a way of you integrating as well? Using to escape the security services back in Syria. So it has nothing to do about integration, sadly. So, yeah, um, would it be okay to go ahead with the question? Yeah, uh, Jack name is something, Facebook, everything was fake name because in Syria, if, if you get caught, it's your gun. Um, so I, I think integration is a very important subject. And I think the coming decade will be, I think a lot of debate will be about integration. Because integration means different things to different people. You know, um, what is integration? I, I see it somehow different from other people, you know. So, and again, I, I was reading an article uh, by a, an Iranian, you know, a former refugee called the ungrateful refugee, you know. And she presented a great, great argument there that, you know, and why we're supposed to, you know, always just to, to, to be grateful to these people, you know. I mean, when, when would it end? Well, is there a timeline? Will they stop being, you know, being a refugee, what is the timeline, you know? And this, this idea of, you know, in integration, as I mentioned, and, and going back to the idea of host community, you know, integration does not work one way. It's a two-way, you know, process. That if, if I am living in a community and the community is not supportive, you know, does not understand my, my problems and my issues and my mental health problems and, and my history, it's not going to work. If, if I go to the butcher, if I go to the bus driver, to the teacher, to the university, and they do not understand, it's not going to work, you know. And for some times, you know, integration works for some people and you find them, they're doing great, they're integrated. But I found some people have been living in some country for over 50 years and they never integrated. They cannot speak a word of the language. You know, um, not everyone is going to integrate. You know, it depends on, 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 on the country and the support that the government is putting. If you're cutting the, the, the funding for, for, for language classes or whatever, it's not going to work. And again, don't forget that the trauma and this, this idea of, of identity, because you're, sometimes you assume that you, you're asking people to give up on their identities and transform into a new thing, which is not going to happen. I, I, I've met many, many English friends who came to Iraq, for instance, you know, and the only place that they would go, it would be a place where all the Brits sit and talk and, and celebrate. They do not mix sometimes with, with, with the host community. So why assume that others should come and integrate while we, we just go as expats, you know, whatever. So it should be both ways. I'm going to... Um bring this to a close by asking all of our panelists to give me one practical thought about improving the situations we've heard about. One practical thought. It's, I'm not saying a solution, I'm saying a thought. Who would like to go first? 
I'll go first, but I don't, I'm not sure that I have, um, a, a, not even, a, well, I have a, it's not a solution, but I think it's where we need to start. And we need to change the, or open up the political space. Because what we've seen over the last few years, but actually this goes back more than 20 years, is a narrowing of the political space within which to have a conversation about migration. And for us, bringing evidence to bear on that so that people understand that what happens is part of a bigger geopolitical and social process of transformation that is kind of normal at one level, albeit accelerated by technology and other things we see, um, political leaders could be much, much braver. And if they were, we might see a slightly different picture or story of what's happening. Um, I would say that we need to go down to the micro before we can design policies at the macro. And um, what I mean is that we need to understand how people make decisions, why they come, how, why they move on, how they understand policies. Um, what what their perceptions of family reunification are, for example, do they even have any knowledge of these policies or do we just make assumptions on this? And then once we have that information, we can design policies that actually reach people. I think for me, the, the focus should be also to put a lot of pressure you know, and not only pressure, but support the hosting governments wherever, you know. Because at the end of the day, we are a human being, you know, living in the 21st century, you know, we need rights. It, the, 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 the solution should be based on rights. So give people access to work, to education, um, to citizenship or whatever, you know, just make them feel that they are humans, you know, they are not subhumans. So making the, the rights-based, you know, um, debate at the center or at the heart of the debate is, is very important. Well, the last one to go, well, um, I would say that we need to tell our government what we think. And then, and then I know I belong, I'm Canadian, and I'm actually French-Canadian, I look so much French-Canadian. But the thing is, is the fact that we need to go and tell them that we don't want our public money to increase the suffering of people who are fleeing for their life or for a better life. And I think that government will listen because their eyes is on the next election. And if we tell them loudly enough and, and a lot of people together, they will, they will listen because they want to be reelected. So they're going to try to please us. And I do not believe that you know, citizens don't have a voice. Now, we have a voice if we collectively bring it together. Canadians, we rarely go in the streets. We went only once in the street and it was to protest against Iraq war. And you know what? We didn't go. <coughs> I'm going to bring it to an end because we have run out of time. Um, thank you to our panel um, to have informed opinion, to have research, to have experience, all the things which bring reality to any sort of question, and a complex question, um, which all of Europe is faced with. And I think it's been a privilege to listen to them this evening. Thank you for your questions. Again, it's important, I think, that people do question, do wonder where we're going, do want some more ideas, because the situation at the moment, as we've been hearing, is one which, and going back to your original central word, is one of questioning our humanity, that that has to be addressed. 
and by all of us. Thank you to the ODI for hosting this. Um, thank you to the people online for joining us. And keep an eye on odi.org for further upcoming events. And for those of you, and I have no doubt there will be many, who want more to say, who want to ask questions, well, we're all going to gather in the next room for a reception. So please join us and let us give a round of applause to our contributors. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.